I'm Maggie Kelly, and this is Parent Kind, the show where I investigate the parenting experience from every angle possible. Each episode, I'll hunt down juicy stories from a new topic, tackling all the big stuff sex, body image, mental health, and everything in between. Thanks to our sponsor at Body Catalyst. Now, let's get started. I'd like to dedicate today's episode to my dad, the great Billy Kelly. Dad, you are the reason I am curious about the world, why I always try to consider both sides of a story, and why I always wear sensible shoes on long car trips. Don't ask. Thank you for showing me what fathers should be. And uh, also thanks for showing me how to stack the dishwasher properly. Love you, Dad. Okay, full transparency. I'm going to read you uh, what my notes said, and there's not many, um, from my first meeting with our producers about writing this episode, which is going to be all about dads. It was three questions. Number one, what do men think about? Number two, what do men talk about when there's no women in the room? And question three, is fatherhood actually hard? Is it harder than motherhood? It is very embarrassing to share these questions. It's kind of like I was 12 years old again, talking about boy germs. It's all a bit cringy, a bit gendered, very old-fashioned. But the fact is, when it came to answering these questions, I had no idea. So I thought that I would dedicate this whole episode to the fatherhood experience and set out to answer these questions. We'll start off, as we usually do, with a story about a dad who found himself being thrust from a hard-partying, rock-and-roll musician-slash-journo life to being a dad. He tells us his story of addiction and how fathering a little girl and now also a little boy has changed it all. But then we're going to do something different. I'm actually going to pass across to someone else to help me out. I gathered up three dads from three different stages of fatherhood and basically locked them in a room. Um, (laughs) They were in good hands, so I locked them in a room with my replacement host, the awesome Ryder Jack of Tomorrow Man, and he hosted, honestly, just a fascinating roundtable with the dads. So we all get to sit in and listen in on Secret Men's Business. Ooh. So, my friends, pull on your best Jerry Seinfeld sneakers and unzip those cargo shorts because today we are doing it for the dads. Story one. The day the music almost died. Robbie Coleman is a journalist and a musician and therefore has a few aliases. He's been R.F. Coleman, Robert F. Coleman that guy who glassed himself on stage that time. But I've always known him as Robbie. We met a really, really long time ago. Uh, We were both in our 20s. Pretty sure we were both high as a kite in a nightclub that I was working at. um, I remember sitting on top of these speakers, smoking a cigarette indoors. That's how old I am. And I told him that I thought he was a really shit writer. I'm not sure why. Anyway, he wasn't too impressed. And Robbie reminds me of this at the start of our interview. We share a laugh at how different life is now. 
sitting among the children's toys in our respective homes, nursing bottles of cold milk instead of vodka. But Robbie's journey from club kid to dad of two is perhaps a little more dramatic than most. Because Robbie's old life is a little more dramatic than most. He's been shot, um, stabbed, poisoned with cyanide. When he was a journo, he went to Thailand to cover the military coup and put a hit out on himself because he befriended a gangster in a military-run cocaine bar. He was even taught to make bombs with Phil Galea, who is now serving 12 years for terrorism. And yeah, he glassed himself on stage one time. That was kind of Robbie's signature style. Punk, out of control, a little scary. And then everything changed. Robbie's partner got pregnant and he became a dad. This is where it gets interesting. Robbie's old life suddenly came head to head with his new life. Uh, And I kind of caught up on this via Instagram when I noticed that Robbie had gone sober and had kind of become super dad. Anyway, this was a transition that I was way too familiar with. Um, My own partner, Julian, he kind of also went through that much less dramatic and way less dangerous way, but still, he kind of struggled with this transition. I remember being pregnant and we just fought like cats and dogs. It felt like my body had flicked a switch and I was suddenly flooded with hormones that made me want to eat, sleep and cuddle on the couch, not much else. But for Julian, his life was just tracking the same as normal. We were always big partiers. We'd always partied together. So for him, this change was really sudden and not very fun. So yeah, there was a lot of nights where I would be sitting at home, pregnant, and Julian would go out to a party. He'd come home, I'd still be awake, because I was so angry. I accused him of being a terrible father before our kid was even born. I was furious, he was furious, and no one was getting what they wanted. So when I saw Robbie posting about his journey into fatherhood, it was kind of like my own experience, or Julian's own experience, on steroids. Because Robbie Coleman, well, he's Robbie Coleman. So I had a few questions for him. Like, how the hell did he go sober and basically just transform into super dad overnight? What happened? How did it feel? What was it like eight years ago when fatherhood came knocking? So I was playing a lot of gigs, playing a lot of shows, um, doing a lot of drugs, drinking a lot. Um, Probably pretty unhappy, to be honest. I guess mentally I wasn't really fully prepared to be a father. Um, and that was only really apparent post-birth. Um, but I was definitely excited. I, I, I'm sort of damaged. The only reason I remember this is because, well, I have the audio and the footage and I wrote about it. And so, yeah, most of my memories are trawling back through notes or memos. This is something that actually comes up quite a bit during the interview. Robbie's memory of these crazy years are pretty bad. There are big gaps where he doesn't remember doing things and has only managed to piece it together through what photos or iPhone videos or what his mates are able to basically fill him in on. I ask Robbie where he thinks all of this kind of began. I'm not going to go into detail, but 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 certainly suffered some sort of trauma in my childhood, which I guess has shaped the way I am as a father or tried to be. Um... But that definitely affected me sort of when I was about 19. I stopped being the grade A student 
uh, well, I don't think I've got A's, but you know, that's the that's the cliche. Um, but you know, the good student and mum said the worst thing I ever did was um, when I was about ten, I put used scratchies on a lady's car under her windshield and then ran off. Um, and apparently, I water ballooned a neighbour once. Robbie thinks that around this time he started to feel the symptoms of anxiety and depression and a few other things thrown in. You know, I've been diagnosed with everything from thought disorder to bipolar to what's my current. I just bombed some ADHD medication on the way here. And I think I've got a little bit of OCD apparently and obviously a lot of anxiety, but who doesn't? When I was about 19 or 20, my wires just changed. Um, and I was never creative at school and um, and I didn't think the way I do now. And and I don't know whether that was chemically induced or anything. And, you know, only science, when I don't donate my uh, body to science, will, will they find out. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think, I didn't come out of the womb self-destructive. <laughs> From his late teens onwards, Robbie found new ways to satiate this building sense of self-destruction inside of him. Drugs, alcohol, gambling, these were all natural bedfellows to his career as a journalist and frontman of a band. 27 when his partner fell pregnant, his behaviour wasn't really a problem. I mean, he was just being 27, right? The problem was when his daughter arrived, he couldn't stop. Again, memories are tough, but I remember holding my kid and I didn't have, you know, everyone talks about this immediate connection. I didn't have immediate connection with this kid. Um, And in fact, I was kind of just looking forward to going to the pub and and getting pissed, um, which was really sad. And, and you know, I've, I've reflected a lot on th- the saddest part of of having my first child was not being able to remember anything. So I, I, I don't have any memories for, you know, the first few years of her life really, like except for photos and a f- few vignettes, um, which is really sad. In the same way that most dads do, Robbie tried to maintain his old life within this new world of babyland. In time, his partner went back to work and Robbie took on more time at home. During the day, he would watch play school and go to the park and make his baby pasta for lunch. And as soon as his partner got home, he would head to the pub and begin a big night of drinking. I continued doing what I was doing and, you know, quite selfishly, but also... My partner at the time, um, due to her work circumstances, I, I was actually spending the, the vast majority of time with with my daughter. So, strangely, you know, between the hours of you know six a.m. and and sort of seven p.m., it was it was us. And I have little vignettes of feeding pasta and or a bottle, depending on what age she was, and looking her looking out the window pensively at a wattle bird. And that's kind of one of the only memories I really have. Um, you know, as soon as my partner got home from work, I'd, I'd just hit the bar. And so it was pretty, you know, I, I think I wasn't a very happy person. Um, and I certainly didn't really have as much of a connection with the, the child as I think I, you know, I, I certainly do now. Yeah. So he's drinking at home with his kid. Not great for safety reasons, but something that's, I guess, kind of easy to get away with. Kids don't know. They don't really notice anything like that when they're really young. But their drinking didn't stop when Robbie went to work and that was becoming a real problem. He was sneaking in alcohol on the job, uh, topping up between boozy drinking sessions so that basically he was barely ever sober. It was almost like Robbie had stopped caring who knew. 
I was drinking from about 10am, so I'd have a can of Coke at my desk while I was doing my full-time job at a corporate um, in a management position <laughs> and, you know, drinking vodka and Coke from sort of 10 or 11am. I wasn't being cool. Um, yeah, I was, I was going to the pub and smashing pints and, and, and shots in between and, you know, doing drugs. And I think the real problem was prescription medication. And the other issue is that I was really good at being, like, hiding it. So I could be pretty hammered and hold myself together and particularly on drugs I could could hold myself together so it wasn't wasn't awesome sort of being um hammered and and self-destructive in silence and I guess that's what what made it go on for so long things went from bad to worse but like when I talk to other people who are sober they they talk about defining moments or whatever and I think it was I think my whole 20s was a defining moment of you know pretty much every day I go I should I've got to stop you know I'd at the casino and it'd be four in the morning and I was there just to empty my bank account and just so I'd walk outside and be like well I've got nothing which is fucking dumb like it's just the dumbest thing in the world at this point of the interview I asked Robbie if he felt like he was just chasing a high like a nostalgic high I guess like a lot of new parents um I had a similar sort of experience after years and years of drinking and partying and working in nightclubs and basically just living off adrenaline, it took me a really long time to settle and to kind of find a new pace as a parent. It took me a while to feel okay in the quiet, slow, methodical life of a mum. But Robbie says, no, that, that wasn't the case. He wasn't chasing a high. For Robbie, it was more serious. He was out to destroy himself just putting myself as low as I can. It's self-destruction. It was too chicken shit to kill myself. <laughs> I think I'd never want to do that to my family, but you know, I was sort of eroding away and putting myself in positions where I effectively was trying to be without money, and, and which is just such a dumb thing for someone of privilege and my background and, and you know, my profession, vocation and um, access is, is to waste it or away and gamble it away or pissed away or take drugs and it's just really dumb. Uh, but in terms of a defining moment, I remember my former partner wanted to go to a movie and I didn't really get hangovers, but I was too hungover at like 6pm to go to the movie and we had a babysitter and we hadn't been on a date for ages and I just was like, I'm a shit partner, I'm a shit parent. Still kept drinking, still kept taking drugs, but I think that was something that is a memory that I do have where I was like, I've really let this person down and, um, and it's not the first time and I've really let, yeah, my kid down. And and then Robbie says he hit the real rock bottom, the moment where he truly realised that this had to stop. Oh, no, if you want the real, like the actual defining moment when I went sober was um, much more chaotic than that. A friend of a friend, so his friend had unfortunately committed suicide, then... I drank solidly for 48 hours to the point where I packed a bag for the first time and said, I'm leaving. And then a guy followed me home, um, apparently, quote unquote, to make sure I was all right. But really, he was known in the area for wanting to fight. And I, so hand to heart, I, I've never been in a street fight until that point. And I was, yeah, 34 or something. Um, and yeah, he punched me on the way home, said he didn't want him to know where I lived. And um, yeah, we got into a massive, massive fight 
I couldn't talk properly for two weeks because he was strangling me. And then I had my hair ripped back and it was my dad. And my dad had driven from um, the peninsula in some record time, called him and said where I was and um, to pick me up from the bar and take me back and sober up. And uh, yeah, I remember getting my hair ripped back mid-fight and it was my (laughs) economist dad, yeah, academic father. His dad had received a call from Robbie's partner begging him to come and help control him, basically. In an insane movie moment of kismet, his dad had driven past the fight, seen that it was Robbie, pulled over and madly leapt in to save his son. He basically grabbed him from behind, pulled him out, bundled him in the car and drove him the hour or so back to the peninsula where he lived. And just gave him time to recover, really. That was the last drink that Robbie would have. At the time of the interview, it had been 450 days since that awful night. Some of the stories, you know, that have been told back to me about my behaviour when I got home or it was I wasn't a great guy. So there's always, you know, a bit of emotional sort of debt. Yeah, after that day, I was like, when I got back to Melbourne, um, yeah, I realised I, I had a pretty good, you know, uh, a really wonderful who had stuck around and um, two kids who I, you know, adore and um, have always adored. I was just being selfish. So it's, yeah, it was the turning point. I, so I, I won't ever drink again um, and I'll never take drugs again. Can I touch wood? I, I don't want to ruin the sound. But we'll see. I mean, I hope I don't. Um. Sobriety for Robbie has been a bit of a mixed bag. It's kind of boring. Those extreme lows are gone, sure, but so are the extreme highs. Life has just kind of flattened out. The roller coaster has pulled in, and Robbie has had to find ways to keep that brain of his ticking away. In the last four years, I've started maybe 14 businesses, which is, I think, the OCD thing. I collect cameras, I've got hundreds of cameras, Pokemon cards, but only ones with errors. Uh, I've started collecting basketball cards. So I've collected like five or 6,000 over the past few weeks. Uh, yeah, I definitely have something wrong with me, um, but at least it's not, <laughs> at least it's not destructive. <laughs> yeah, it's a gear change, um, sort of watching Homeland for the third or fourth time and, and sorting through basketball cards to see, you know, what number lamello ball you've got and whether it's a, you know, pink pulsar or a green prism. I don't even watch basketball. Jokes aside, Robbie says that his sobriety, his art, his writing and his music have absolutely blossomed. Music's really good for me. So, I mean, we probably made 60 demos in three or four months. Yeah, I launched an entire business from end to end. So I just worked. I work a lot. I ask him if it's been hard to rediscover his creative voice separate from who he used to be. Because, you know, there's this romantic image we all have of ourselves as the tortured artist, right? What happens when you're the happy artist? Is your work still just as good? I think creativity. So, I mean, it just comes out in a different way. So, when I was, inverted commas, creative, when I was wasted, it was more of a performance, I guess. And I've played gigs sober since, I don't know, there's a lot more feeling and less glassing myself with champagne flutes. Um. It's kind of funny, you know, like this whole interview, 
I was just waiting for Robbie to have this big reveal, give us his secret, the why of, you know, becoming sober, becoming super dad. I just wanted that soundbite where he goes, I became a father and everything changed and I wanted to be better for my kids. But he doesn't say that. It doesn't work like that. And I guess it took me a little while of thinking on this to kind of understand why. Here's what I figured out. Parenthood isn't a Hollywood movie. There's no magical spell that instantly transforms you. The changes happen really, really gradually, like a cliff face, slowly changing over hundreds of years of water and ocean just crashing against it. In time, as a parent, you also change shape. The sharp bits erode away, you soften. You learn to stop being angry at shitty drivers or someone getting your pizza order wrong. You don't feel the need anymore to be at every party you're invited to. You even start to love those nights at home, tucked up on the couch with a snotty kid watching cartoons. But it takes time. And the reason you change isn't what you might think. The reason you change is for yourself, not for your kid or your partner or your AA coach, not because a therapist tells you it's the right thing to do or your dad's disappointed in you or your ex thinks you're a bad parent. You do it because you're sick of yourself and that kind of great self-improvement is something that parenthood prompts. You are both the cliff and the ocean, changing the shape of yourself to survive. So when I asked Robbie at the end of our interview how he sees himself as a sober man and as a dad, it's not surprising that it's still pretty tumultuous. He's not going to give me that blue sky answer, the soundbite that I'm wanting. He's not going to tell me that everything's really great and he's happy and, you know, he's doing it all for the kids. Robbie's trying to do this for himself and he's still unsettled. He's still battling away to find a shape that fits. Maybe he's more ocean than cliff face for now. Overall, I'm nicer. I'm nicer and also I'm more self-aware. So I think I'm more self-conscious now, now that I'm self-aware and I'm self-conscious. Because, yeah, I I don't have the shield of being like a lunatic anymore and um, I have to be interesting without, you know, taking off my shirt or I've got to be real now. And so I think actually grappling with who I really am. But I think I'm a lot nicer. Uh, I'm not as calm because I don't have as many drugs to calm me and I'm restless, And I'm, but I'm better with the kids. I had trouble controlling my emotions and I still do. Before we finish up, I ask Robbie if he misses his old life at all. I do miss pretending to be some, yeah, what you used, you used the thing like a creative dude getting pissed in bars. I mean, there's some some sort of romantic appeal to that. Um, and I do think that that was, nah, I was, that was wanker. Nah, thinking about that, that's wankerish. No, I miss none of it. None of it. It can all go fuck itself. Nah, I'm cool. I'm totally happy making music and being sober. And if, yeah, no one's got a problem with it, I don't think. Who would have a problem with that?
good. That's uh, Robbie's new song, I Couldn't Trust. You can listen to the full thing on Spotify. And now we're going to run to a quick ad break. Time for an ad break. Story two, secret dad business. What happens when you put four dads in a tiny room with a list of deeply personal questions and a couple of microphones. Well, friends, you are about to find out. I had been recently following the work of Tomorrow Man, who is an Australian company running workshops for men. Their tagline is great, reinventing masculinity. And they're all about challenging boys and men about the male stereotype, which in Australia is massive. So they're doing really, really good work. I was really curious to how this lent itself to fatherhood, to the experience of fatherhood, which, as we know, really comes with its own subset of stereotypes. The provider, the non-emotional parent, the person dishing out the discipline, which we all know is total bullshit. But I guess I wanted to hear that from dads themselves. So I asked one of Tomorrow Man's amazing facilitators, Ryder Jack, to put three Aussie dads through their paces. All right. So we're sitting around a semi-oval table with uh, four dads, including me. Uh, Before we start, I'll just introduce myself. My name is Ryder Jack. I'm 35 years old. I'm father to two little boys, a three and a six-year-old. And what I do for work is I work for an organization called Tomorrow Man, which travels around the country working in male-dominant environments, exploring the current state of masculinity. We get into rooms and create spaces where men discuss what's working, what isn't working, and what does a man of tomorrow look like. Um, It's a very heated, confusing time for gender, so we just think it's important that people, yeah, have conversations about all facets to do with gender. Um, but today isn't all about me. It's about these three wonderful fathers sitting around the table. Um, we might shoot around to the left. And if you could please introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, my name is Philip Lethlean. I'm 69 and I've got two daughters. One's 31 and one's 33. Um, and I'm still with the mother of the daughters and uh, we have a fabulous time together, all of us. One of them's about to be married, all of that. Um, family setup's good, kids are great. It's been a dream run. Hi, um, my name's Rodney Cruz. I'm 56. I have uh, five kids, uh, 15-year-old, 14-year-old, 12-year-old, four- and two-year-old. It's a complicated family. I'm gay and... Uh, there are three primary families within my family. It's complicated. What I do for a, a living is I'm a lawyer, so everybody gets to hate on me. Adam Dale, I am 43. Um, oh, wait, 42, I think. 42 and a half, I think my kids say. Um, I am a change manager working in change and communications. Um, I've got two beautiful girls, eight and ten. Um, and, yeah, it's been a wild ride. Ryder kicked things off by asking the dads what they were like as kids. The first to volunteer was Rodney, a gay dad to five kids. Maybe to start with, gents, I'd love to know, what were you like 
when you were the age of one of your kids? So I know if you, you've got more than one, but I'd love to know what the younger version of you guys were like. My eldest is 15. When I was 15, I was a little shit. I was a horrible child, you know, disrespectful, naughty, yeah, always in trouble. And I think, you know, it was a stage my parents probably wished I wasn't there for a lot of the time. I'm the exact opposite of what my son is, which is a thankful thing. He's not me. Was there anything hidden behind the reason why you're behaving that way or? Um, uh, I think it's just the background I came from. I came from a very dysfunctional single parent family. And uh, I think, you know, my behaviour at that age was just a reflection of the, 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 the environment I grew up in. We're talking about uh, the way men feel. I grew up uh, with my mum and I had a violent family history. And my um, father left when I was about 12. Incredible. Thank you for being so honest. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you came out? 13. 13. Well, almost 13. I say 13, it's easier. I fell in love with an English cricketer called David Gower um, and uh, I used to sit up and watch the old black and white TV at night watching cricket. I hated cricket, but I fell in love with him. And uh, uh, my mum came home one night. Uh, she'd been out, she was a bit drunk, and I told her she cried. And I said, well, that's not the reaction I want, and walked off. But was it was it the uh, the fabulous looks of this David Gale or he's, uh, he, just that he was a cricketer and, and somehow rather a rock star? No, it wasn't because he was a cricketer, because I didn't like cricket. And he was wearing a helmet with a full face mask, so all I saw was his eyes. I think I just fell in love with his eyes. I don't know. <laughs> um, because I look back at pictures of him when I was... 13 years of age, and I think, oh, you're, you're pretty average looking. That was Phil, you just heard, by the way, uh, jumping in to analyse the source of Rod's childhood crush. Phil's the oldest one at the table at 69 and probably the most laid back of the group. He's a bit of an old hippie, real free spirit. Let's hear what he was like at his daughter's age, 30. So I'd been, you know, up until then having terrific adventures and travelling the world and um, working on weather stations and, you know, being on the hippie trail to, you know, Afghanistan and all that sort of stuff. But by this time I was back in at the <laughs> at the uh, hippie commune in uh, northern New South Wales and just splitting up with the girl that I'd spent most of my little early years doing all those adventures with. I was a monogamous 20-year-old, which I don't think my daughters probably were or are, or anyway. But uh, so by the time I was 30, 31, all of that was had collapsed and I was back down in Melbourne working with a theatre company, you know, off and on for years. And um, that was when I met Liz and, you know, I was always keen to have kids anyway. And so that was when I started being a family guy, really, in my early 30s. And then we had Adam, who's really your typical dad's dad, He's super into vintage cars and car racing and, like, other car stuff. He's also the proud owner of the best moustache in the room. I think um, definitely was quite grounded, uh, rounded, confident sort of 10-year-old, I guess. Liked spending a lot of time with my father um, and doing that sort of blokey stuff in the garage. But I think I was friends with more girls than boys, I think, through my whole childhood. Um and, yeah, I sort of never really was interested in kids. 
Um, didn't think I'd wanted any and sort of life turned that around on me and, um, yeah, had two daughters and, yeah, absolutely the best thing that could have happened to me. Uh, and, yeah, people have always said, would you go for a third? Don't you need a boy? But not interested at all. Like. So we have these really different dads in the room, right? We have Ryder who has two little kids. We have Adam with two pre-teens, uh, tweens. We have Phil with two adult kids and we have Rodney with a mixture of all of the above. So I found it super interesting when Ryder asked them what the biggest challenge was to them as a father and that despite these generational difference, how their responses were all kind of pretty similar. What do you find challenging about being a parent? Like we're all at different stages. You and I bit young, got younger kids. You've got a bit of a mix. Yeah. What do you guys find challenging about it? Well, it depends what stage they're at, you know. When when they're little, I think you've really got to kind of be their portal to the to the culture that they're born in, the world and all that sort of stuff. Like we had a few little things, like we'd always make sure that we all ate together and no one was off doing their shit elsewhere in the house. No no phones at the table and all that sort of stuff. We, I was fairly strict about no dolly magazines and all that sort of, because they're two girls, you know, you don't want them wanting to be pubescent before they've even finished playing with Lego, you know, which is, I think, really a real... The, the power of marketing and culture is so so easily overwhelms the goodwill of the parents. So, Phil, you mentioned this idea of Dolly magazines, which probably promotes certain feminine traits or expectations and how you didn't want your girls to get caught up in that. Um, keen to hear from you guys, just parenting your kids, um, how stereotypes plays out or doesn't. It's basically been three boys that we've raised. One of them was gender non-conforming for quite a long time. So when we'd go out to Kmart or something, he'd go straight to the um, you know, the princess dresses and all that sort of stuff. It was a, it's, it's a challenge because on one level you think, you, you just do you. you know, if, if you want to be that, that's absolutely fine and I totally support you. But then there was another little niggly bit that's almost driving you to take them away, drag them away from it because you're you're embarrassed what other people may think. Um, it, it's a little bit, it is a challenge. It's like, okay, you know you should let them just be themselves because I think we're all of that age and of that awareness that if you don't let kids be themselves, it's a disaster. You're just ruining them for life. So you've got to let them do it. But sometimes it's really hard because no matter how enlightened you think you are, you still got all that shit you carry from when you're a kid, you know, that boys play football and do certain things and girls do certain things. Whereas I don't think the kids had trouble with it. They were just open to everything because they're kids. I think the adults had trouble. That's really interesting, those gender roles. It's something that um, I've been really aware and, you know, thinking how I'm going to play this out through their through their childhood. Um, I really wanted to make sure and, you know, promise myself that I'd always be, I want to show them that, you know, what a man's role is, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that there's a man's job and a woman's job. And because I know how it's going to shape their relationships in the future. Um, I don't want them, you know, to settle for a man that you know, just watches TV on the weekend and that sort of stuff. So I make sure I get in there and let them see me clean, cleaning the toilet, you know, in the kitchen. I brush and do their hair every morning in piggy tails or whatever they want, that sort of stuff. And really trying to say there's no such thing as man's job and girl's job and boy's jobs and, and all that. So I think they they do get that. I'm pretty hands-on. Um, but it was interesting. It was only a couple of weeks ago, Sloan, my youngest, 
um, said, oh, she really loves doing all the dad stuff. She wants a motorbike and helps me in the, with the car and all that. And uh, she said, oh, dad, you know, if you die, um, I'm going to be the man of the house. <laughs> and I, just thought, I said, well, <laughs> what is that? You know, what, what does that mean? And she said, oh, you know, just just looking after the other girls and um, doing all that stuff. And I said, babe, you were screaming in the bath because there was a moth in the shower. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, well, yeah, well, okay, well, I'll work on that. <laughs> so. One of the other big topics that came up was technology. Phil, whose two daughters are now in their 30s, was remembering how important it was for him to educate his girls on the tricks of advertising on the TV. And then Adam and Rod, who both have teenagers now, were comparing that to social media. I reckon it's really important to teach kids uh, to make the media literate, you know, because no matter how wholesome and pure you you are as a parent, you're only like 10% of the cultural influence that they're getting. Like we used to spot the edit when we were watching TV, we'd spot the edit, so we'd just... This one, this one, this one. So you knew that there was an actual new camera angle or a new something going on, and that was made for a decision. That that's a decision by the people that are making this product that you're getting fed, you know. And I'm lucky because I've straddled the the steam age because I'm an old codger, uh, and uh, and the digital age. Because so you get the contrast. But kids growing up in it now, they're just in this complete soup, you know, like they're they're boiling frogs. There's a thing called TikTok, which I don't get on, but um, my three boys are all on TikTok constantly. And we have rules about, you know, they can, they can watch it, but they can't post because they're just not allowed to post. When My eldest said, when can I post something? I said, when you're 18 and pay for your own phone, you can do it. What we end up hearing is what they see on social media and it's partly funny and other part, it's just scary it, it, it horrifies us what you saw what did you see and um it scares us because it, it is an influence and even if it wasn't tiktok that you know all their friends at school are on it etc how do we compete against it and we've had many talks over lots of wine well we did exactly the same thing Romy wanted a tiktok account and was begging us for it and so that's when we said all right well tell you what i'll get one as well and you know here are the rules exactly the same you know you I'll know your password and your username and you're only allowed to add people that you know and it's going to be a private account and you have to add me and I'm going to set notifications so that anytime you post something and I'll see it. She said, yep, 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 and uh, went ahead and she made a few videos and had a few friends adding her and this and that and then came to me and said, oh, someone's trying to add me. I don't know who this is. I said, yep, well, we'll get rid of that. And we sort of left it for a while and she came to me sort of in tears and and said, Dad, I, I've messed up. And um, I had a look and she'd made like 50 videos of just her dancing, nothing nothing too bad. And she said, someone else has added me and they've seen me, something, something like that. And I think it was great. We caught it then, but it was the perfect learning experience. And for her to come to me and say, you know, in tears, Dad, I screwed up and this has happened, this is what you said would happen. And just to be able to say, yeah, look, you know, you're not in trouble. But this is, you know, you, know, you understand now. This is what it is. So that is incredible parenting. We call that staying cool or low reactivity. Um, rather than you exploding when she came to you about that, 
that would have given her a data point where dad is not a person to go to when shit hits the fan. But as a result of you, even though internally you might have been freaking out, for you to keep your cool in that way, it just means that you'll be someone she goes to when yeah. she needs to. And pri privacy is a big thing. Uh, I've said to her, you know, uh, at the moment, her body's changing because she's going to that age. And I said, so your room is is private. Like you can shut the door and I'm not allowed in. Mum's not allowed in. Your sister's not allowed in. We have to knock. And if you're in the bathroom, then we have to knock. It's a bit different for your little sister because she's a little bit younger, but that's your sanctuary. And, you know, if your door's shut, then the door's shut. Yep. We'd reached that part of the conversation. It was time to talk about the birds and the bees. I personally grew up with a doctor for a father, so I knew about vaginas and penises and periods and the whole shebang, really, before I even knew how to do long division. However, the emotional side of it, if you could call it that, uh, like body image issues or talking about my virginity, that was definitely mum's territory. So it was really interesting to hear how these dads were getting involved and what their concerns were with their kids. Rodney, I'd love to hear from you. Have you had any talks um, with your eldest about sex or intimacy or porn? Yes, yeah, yeah. And I was sat down with Justin and Ethan a few years ago. They would have been, I think, 13 and 12 at the time. And I said, nothing's hidden in our house. And I said, so we're going to talk about sex and masturbation today. And they said, can we talk about something else? Yeah, uh, exactly. Can't we talk about footy? No, no. And I said, and I've got a book. Oh, and I say, you've got half an hour, so just sit down and relax. I said, there will be a quiz at the end. And so I made it fun and um, they were super embarrassed for the first 10 minutes and then they started asking questions. And I started asking the youngest who is, Justin is probably, I don't know, he might, he might be gay, he might be bi, he might be nothing. We started asking a lot about female anatomy and... I'm not an expert on that, <laughs> not even close. Um, that one time when I was 16 doesn't count. And uh, all of a sudden I found myself getting embarrassed, cause not embarrassed about what I was talking about, is that I couldn't answer the questions. I said, I have to take that on notice, I have to get back to you. So the only thing I would say about that is be prepared, make sure you do know your stuff, because I sort of came a bit of a cropper towards the end of that talk. Could have Googled it on the spot. When I'm running intimacy workshops with, with boys, we talk about this idea of uh, just like it's very rare to find two faces that are exactly the same. It's the same thing with genitals. Um, so different is normal. Like your dick is supposed to look different. My dick's supposed to look different to Phil's dick and boobs are meant to look different and it's, it's, it's just super normal. And um, the most attractive thing you can do is own what you have and feel good about what you have because it's very painful and very expensive to change what you have. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think with kids, teenagers, and this will happen with girls as well, I'm sure you've been through it, is that they want to be everybody else. They want that body because it's been presented as being the ideal body of the time, um, of the day or the week or whatever. And uh, I find that that's hard, uh, hard to challenge and Sometimes I, I think uh, I almost become, what's the word, like like a zealot in challenging it. And sometimes I think, oh, maybe I should just pull back because it worries me that they see this perfect body and they say, oh, I want a body like that. Oh, well, we all want, I said, I want a body like that, but, you know, this is what I've got and it's wonderful. 
it goes back to the hairstyles. It changes. So in the 90s, it was the Kate Moss, super, super thin. And then in the 2000s, it was like, no, you can't be too skinny. Um, and now it's the kind of Kardashian hourglass kind of tiny waist, big bum, big, yeah, giant bum, big boobs. Um, so it, it's it's hard to navigate it because it will change again and there'll be a new body impossible body shape yeah yeah so. you want you want to be you want to appear more adult than what you are when you're a teenager and so you just look you know i mean you know it was the beatles were enough once upon a time you know but i don't think you can fight that you can just run commentary on it really you know with with them you can't sort of stop it you just got to say well you know this will you know look at where we used to do it and look at how they used to do it and just uh, this is a thing that happens to you you know you you're not you want to be something a bit more grown up than what you are, you know, because it makes you sexier or whatever. Have you noticed um, body image stuff with your boys? Are yes. they interested in the gym? Oh, yes, our 15-year-old. He's a, he's a competitive swimmer and he's got an amazing body, um, but he he's now quite obsessed about it. He stands in the mirror and just looks at himself. And, and I admit if I was 15 and I looked like that, I'd look at myself too, but... Um, I go in uh, with my dad bod and stand next to him. I said, this is what you end up like. <laughs> That's right, the future. <laughs> this is the future. And just to just to um, take the edge off the seriousness of it because they, they're, I don't, I don't know if you can do it because I can't re- quite remember what I was like at that age with regard to image, body image, but they do get, they really easily to get obsessed, I think. Yep, there's been a rise in body image issues in young men, even in eating disorders. So I think you're handling it perfectly, um, putting a bit of humour in it. and It is scary because, you know, I, I know with girls it can lead to huge amounts of eating disorders, but I didn't think about it with regard to boys. But my eldest is obsessed about the food he puts in his body. He eats very well and he's not going to lose weight or anything like that, but he's he measures his food. He weighs it out. Yeah. And say, we'll have pizza tonight. He goes, no, no, that's too unhealthy. I said, yeah, but I've got beer. I want to have pizza with it. Anyway, all of this talk around sex and bodies then leads the guys to chat about consent. It's something that really wasn't part of the landscape or conversation when I was growing up. So I was particularly interested to hear from the dads of younger kids on how they were managing it, what they were kind of talking about. How do you talk about consent? I mean, I know they're all doing consent workshops at school and they're all learning about it and they probably know more about it than I do. They know the language and all that sort of stuff. But we try and have this conversation and it's like brushed off with them. Yeah, yeah, we know all about that. And I just wonder, do they know it is, or are they just saying I've had a lesson on it? And I mm-hmm. consent for me um, is, you know, we've mainly got boys, so it's... Um, uh, it's from a particular perspective, uh, not entirely, but from a particular perspective. And I imagine it's, it's it's a very different conversation you have with girls. But still, you know, it's a conversation around consent. And I don't know, I'm not sure how you, you manage that. We're not doing very well at it at this no, point in time. No. Yeah, it's been quite controversial over the last couple of years of good ways of doing it and just ticking boxes as well. I just recommend to all young people you need to learn how to communicate 
before intimacy, you need to learn how to communicate during intimacy and you need to learn how to communicate after intimacy. So it's not just having the chat at the start going, how do you feel? Are you okay with this? You need to be communicating that the whole time. I know that's kind of a simple way of putting it, but also being able to read body language and seeing if people are uncomfortable or not. And if they're not uncomfortable when you are doing something intimate to be able to just keep checking in. But unfortunately, because of everything we've been talking about with social media and technology, people aren't so good at those face-to-face conversations. They're used to kind of communicating um, via their phone. So getting into the habit of actually being able to... Verbalising it is is very different than texting it. Mm. I wonder what it's going to be like to grow up with kids like these. Kids who are taught consent right from the beginning. I don't know a single woman who doesn't have a story of being sexually compromised at some stage in their life in varying levels of severity, but still not one. So it's pretty exciting to hear a room full of dads talking about this. But just like that, our magical dad vault was over and it was time to wrap up. But not before the blokes offered up their very, very best dad advice. Maybe just to finish with... uh... And look, this is not an advice podcast by any means, but we're all different stages of fatherhood. Maybe just one cheeky little tip to the parents out there. Well, a a profound pearl that will navigate everybody to a perfect family. That's what you're looking for? Uh, (laughs) Definitely not. Um, But I'd love something cynical from you, Phil. That'd be a surprise. I'll go first. The only point I'd make is, Kids love you even when they get to that awkward age of teenagers where they're trying to identify themselves and build their own sense of ID. They still love you and they still need you and it's okay for you to step back and enjoy the peace for a bit. It's hard, but it's it's okay to do that. I've always... Uh, I'm still sort of in the generation where a lot of my friends are having babies, so... Um, I made it always made a point that, you know, after having two that were completely different, there's absolutely no advice that you can give another parent. The only advice I used to say was don't listen to anyone else and you're just going to have to do it yourself. But there was one thing that I always tell people about is swaddling. I don't know if anyone else has done this. It was Dr. Harvey Karp. I think it was probably one of the only YouTube videos I watched on it. But wrap them like a burrito as tight as you can, upside down, shake them on your arm. It works every time. That's the only thing. What, the to title put them to sleep? Better. Yeah, to put them to sleep. doesn't work when they're 10, but, uh, <laughs> you know, once they're walking, it's a bit hard to wrap them up. But in those early days, definitely. I like the bread hold as well, where you hold them like yeah. a loaf of bread. Yeah. Classic hold. Uh, Phil, what about you? Uh, uh, well, um, basically, uh, if you treat your kids like you're living in a share house and, and you're, they're people too and you're just living there and they need to pull a bit of their weight as well as you help them and um and also i reckon it's it's possible to become too anxious about parenting and the slogan it's impossible to fuck it up is is a good one because some of the best people have come from the really most fucked up families and some of the worst people have 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 come from the best families so um just relax and enjoy them as people that you're sharing the house with. <laughs> Pay rent and everything as well. Um, love that. So good, Jens. Uh, my advice would be um, I am by no means a perfect father. Um, I fuck up constantly. 
Uh, but every day I wake up, I try and do, like I just try to be the best dad that I can be. But even though I slip up and I lose my cool and that kind of stuff, the fact that if you're aware of your flaws and your strengths, will put you miles ahead of a lot of people who just have no consciousness at all with their parenting. Um, so yeah, just try to be aware. Uh, maybe, gents, thank you so much. Um, I got a lot out of that chat. I think we're all quite different with different from one another, but quite aligned as well. So just appreciate you all being so open and um, flexible with um, your expression and your masculinity and all of that. Uh, maybe just to finish, I'll give a little plug. Um, if you are interested in Tomorrow Man or Tomorrow Woman, um, look us up. Um, we run workshops in high schools, sporting clubs, communities, white collar, blue collar workplaces. Um, if you're keen to have conversations, uh, look us up. Cheers. Parenting a lot of the time can feel like a competition with your partner. Who's the most tired? Who's working the hardest? And I know for me personally, this can create this weird little cave, this like echo chamber where you stop communicating and stop empathizing with your partner. Today was a really good exercise for me in just listening. God, my therapist is going to love this. The shift into motherhood is hard. It is super, super hard. But it's really important to stop and remember that the shift into fatherhood is also bloody hard. Whether you're like Robbie, making huge life changes to accommodate your new role as dad, or maybe more like Rodney, trying to reconcile your own identity with that of your son's, this process of recalibration is massive. So a huge thank you to all of the awesome dads that came on today's show, to Robbie, Ryder, Phil, Adam, and Rodney, you guys are legends. And remember, whilst this is one small story of parents, it is one huge tale of parent kind. I'm your host, Maggie Kelly, and I will be with you again soon. This has been a Super Real production. Parent Kind is produced by Julian Morgans, and our executive producer is Rachel Tuffrey. Our sound design and original music composition is by Jimmy Saunders, and our theme song is sung by Louisa Rankin. The show has been edited by Jimmy Saunders and Patrick O'Farrell, and our artwork is by Ben Thompson. Thanks for listening to our show.